Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Occasionally people say to me, I don't mind a bit of poetry, but I don't like this modern stuff. I don't like the contemporary. And I say to them, you should try reading some Sinead Morrissey and then shut up about it. And uh, I think Sinead Morrissey is a fantastic contemporary poet. If you notice, I don't, I'm not quite at home with the word contemporary. I get in the middle and then I get a little bit lost. Nevertheless, I think she's brilliant. In case you haven't heard of Sinead Morrissey, all you need to know for the moment is that she is a multi-award winning Northern Irish poet and everything else you need to know you'll get just from listening to these poems. Okay, I'm focusing on a collection of Sinead's, if I may call her that, we've never met, called On Balance. And there's there's so much stuff. There's so much great stuff in here. I think this is a great place to start if you're trying to convert someone to contemporary poetry. There's stuff in it about Napoleon's horse. There's my favourite topic, as many of our regular listeners will know, the aviatrix theme, the, uh, the female pilot. And I want to focus on a poem about the Beatles. There are many major historical happenings in On Balance, and they're looked at in a fabulously different, clever, beautiful way. One thing I go on about on these podcasts is how I love discovering new words, new ideas, new information from poems. People think that you need to be reading non-fiction books, mainly by Lucy Worsley, uh, to learn anything. But I've learned so much, I mean, factual stuff from poetry, as well as mountains of emotional stuff. Anyway, the first poem in the book is called The Millie Helen. And I didn't know what that meant. And then I started reading it, and it's about the launch of a ship. And I thought, oh, maybe it's the sort of SS Millie Helen that I've never heard of. And then it became more and more apparent when it went into the lock and what people were wearing that we were probably talking about the Titanic. And I thought, well, where does the Millie Helen fit in? So I looked it up, and here it is. You will know, I think it's in... Dr. Faustus, the theory that Helen of Troy was so beautiful that she had a face that launched a thousand ships. Therefore, how much beauty do you need to launch one ship, i.e. a Millie Helen, which is, Millie means a thousandth, as you probably know, as in like millisecond or something and Helen being Helen of Troy. So a Millie Helen is a thousandth of a Helen, and so it it doesn't launch a thousand ships. It's enough beauty to launch one. It's a a fabulous, fabulous concept. And this is not one of the poems I'm focusing on, although I easily could have. 
And there are many, many, many poems in this collection I would have happily done a podcast on. But I just want to read you just a bit of it, and I'm not going to do much analysis. I just want to read it. And it's about the moment when the Titanic starts going down that slipway, I think it's called, into the Belfast Lock. It begins by calling the ship a grandstand of iron and a palace of rivets. I think they're references to the ship, although they did build a grandstand of iron for people to watch the launch of the Titanic. Okay, I'm going to read it. I want you to listen out for the S sounds when it starts to slippery slide down the slipway. And also, there's a Millie Helen explanation in there. We find out what the Millie Helen is that launches the Titanic, the, the beauty that launches it. Hold on to your hats. And it starts, grandstand of iron, palace of rivets, starts moving, starts slippery sliding down, slow as a snail at first in its viscous passage, taking on slither and speed, gathering in the atlas-capable weight of its own momentum, tonnage of grease beneath to get it waterborne, tallow, soft soap, train oil, a rendered whale, this last the only Millie Helen, her beauty slathered all over the slipway, Faster than a boy with a ticket in his pocket might run alongside it, the bright sheet of the lock advancing faster than a tram, heavy chains and anchors kicking in lest it outdoes itself, straining up to a riot of squeals and sparks lest it capsizes before its beginning, lest it drenches the alderman. And the ship sits back in the sea as though it were ordinary and wobbles ever so slightly, and then it and the sun-splashed titled hills, the railings, the pinstriped awning, in fact, everything regains its equilibrium. Oh, man, it's just beautiful. And I have to say, and I don't want to uh, kill my own pig, as uh, my dad used to say, but isn't it great to hear a poem just blasted out without some idiot stopping every half-line to... Uh, say, have you noticed the S sounds, or do you know what this word means, or how great that uh, the poet broke the line there, because it gives us two meanings, which are all that. Anyway, I love doing that, I'm going to keep doing it, but every now and again, it's nice to just slide down that poetic slipway and in case you are, I'm turning pages but I love that sound it's one of my favorite sounds in all the world in case you missed it in the in the in the middle there is a rendered whale on the slipway the the grease of a I think it's a sperm whale that they um, use in these cases and it says this last reference to the rendered whale this last, the only Millie Helen, her beauty slathered all over the slipway. So this gorgeous creature, this is how the beauty, the one Millie Helen of beauty required to launch one ship manifests itself here. It is beauty as lube. 
Okay, I move on now to a two-part poem called Perfume. And hold on to that title. So this, I'll tell you up front, is a poem about the Beatles, another major historic event. I suppose also shot through with tragedy, as was the Titanic, but that's it with major historical events. This first part of the poem is subtitled, or I should say dated, 23rd of May 1963. And um, I looked this up in the Beatles Bible, and it was the night that the Beatles played Nottingham's Odeon Cinema on the same bill as Roy Orbison. And the Beatles were just beginning to emerge as quite major to the point where the big O himself, Roy Orbison, decided it was probably better, even though he was the headliner, probably better if they closed the show now because the girls were going crazy whenever they appeared. Whereas Roy was a sort of thin American, extremely static performer in Shades. I'm going to read you the first bit of this. Can I begin before I read by telling you my favourite ever Beatles fact? And you probably think, if you know anything about the Beatles, you've heard every fact. But one I loved was that when the Beatles got their MBEs, which obviously all the best people get eventually, a lot of angry military types returned theirs as a protest about this once highly esteemed award being handed out to some mop tops from Liverpool. And uh, someone wrote to the Times to defend the Beatles and said, I, I, I don't think you appreciate what the Beatles have done for the corduroy industry in this country. <laughs> of all the praise heaped on the Beatles, that's my most fabulously random example. OK, here's the first bit I'm going to read you. The poem is a two-parter. I'm going to begin with part one, 23rd of May 1963. And uh, I'll give you the first uh, ten or so lines. My great-auntie Winnie may as well have spotted a crack in the floor of Nottingham's Odeon Cinema. Beginning under the stage like a telltale hairline fissure in a damn face, then zigzagging towards the exit. As have been struck by the actual bellwether that assailed her, the morning she trudged in to sweep and mop and dust the flip back seats after the pop music concert the night before. Not just a common enough stench of smoke and sweat but an extra, still warm, acrid musk, the mixed-in fog of a stable in summer heat, hitting her like the reek of a hospital laundry. So the speaker's great-auntie Winnie is obviously a cleaner at the Nottingham Odeon and has gone in the night after the Beatles gig. She may as well have spotted a crack in the floor of Nottingham's Odeon Cinema, beginning under the stage 
like a telltale hairline fissure in a damn face. Obviously, foreboding and danger if you see a fissure, a mighty crack in a damn face. That means a lot of fluid is in danger of bursting through. Then zigzagging towards the exit. So you have to imagine... It's as if she has seen a a zigzagging crack going right down the centre of this cinema. She's clearly seen something which is reminiscent of that. And and I can tell you now that um, part one of Perfume, this poem, the lines of the poem are made to form a long zigzagging trail down the page. Okay. And then it says zigzagging towards the exit. So that's what it might as well have been a mighty crack. She might might as well have seen that as have been struck by the actual bellwether that assailed her the morning she trudged in to sweep and mop and dust the flip back seats. A bellwether, you may know, is something, a sort of a leader, something that indicates the beginning of something. I think literally it's a sheep that leads other sheep. But it's I more commonly used now of you see something and when you look back you think, oh yeah, that was the beginning of that massive thing that happened. That was the first evidence I noted. So she was struck by a bellwether that morning when she went in to clean after the pop music concert the night before, not just the common enough stench of smoke and sweat. Those were the days when public buildings smelt of smoke. Long gone, of course. Sweat lingers on. But an extra still warm, acrid musk, still warm from the night before. The mixed-in fog of a stable in summer heat hitting her like the reek of a hospital laundry. So it's thick in the air, this this fog, this vapour. I'll go on to the next section. Because in answer to Love Me Do, offered up in spectacular harmony, 214-year-old girls had instantly wet themselves, screaming yes, We love you already, but inaudibly, each lone voice hopeless against the squealing sheet metal square of noise. And so their bodies had taken over. Take this river, each shower a gift, intimate and articulate, to whichever identical member they'd pin their collapsing stomachs on. Each stream of steaming yellow, a flower. I think you're getting the picture now. So in answer to Love Me Do, which is the Beatles' first single, their first hit, it wasn't a massive hit, but it was a hit, offered up in spectacular harmony, as the Beatles always did, 214-year-old girls had instantly wet themselves screaming, yes, we love you already, so responding to love me do. But inaudibly, each lone voice, hopeless 
against the squealing sheet metal square of noise. And this is often spoken of the intense noise at Beatle concerts of screaming girls. So they drown out each other's individuality, if you like, each lone voice hopeless against the squealing sheet metal square of noise. I once went to see T-Rex when they were absolutely in their teenage fan pomp and the noise was like nothing I've ever heard. The sound of, I guess it was a thousand screaming girls was intense and moved about to the point where it felt like some enormous screeching animal moving around. Uh, It was the Birmingham Odeon in that case. So many of these occasions were Odeonic in those days. And so their bodies had taken over. And it would, it would be easy, wouldn't it, to write a sort of comic poem about these girls wetting themselves. But I think this is the, one of the many skills of, of Sinead Morrissey, is that she can make 214-year-old girls wetting themselves into a beautiful, almost timeless act of love, act of tribute... And so their bodies had taken over. Take this river, each shower a gift, intimate and articulate, to whichever identical member they'd pinned their collapsing stomachs on. The Beatles looked the same then. They all wore their Sullivan suits, those suits with the little velvet upper lapel. And they had the same haircuts, they wore the same Chelsea boots, as they were known, with the Cuban heel and the elasticated side. And so you pinned your collapsing stomach on whichever identical member you chose. That was That's the suggestion here. And at these gigs, people would hold up signs, I love you, Paul, Ringo forever, whoever it was. So take this river, each shower a gift, intimate and articulate. Articulate, intimate, because it's someone wetting themselves, but articulate. I can't be heard, but I'm offering up this to you, this this part of me. This sounds like I'm really stretching it at the moment. When we go into the second part of the poem... I think you'll then start to look back on this and think, Frank, once again, you were correct. Each shower a gift. It is like a gift at the altar at which they worship. Intimate and articulate to whichever identical member they'd pin their collapsing stomachs on. Their collapsing stomachs referring to them flattening out as they empty their bladders. Each stream of steaming yellow a flower. And again, that sounds like something you might leave on an altar, some sort of tribute. I suppose also a love token, a a flower. Okay, last bit of this part one. And as the crack grew ever wider. So now I think this imaginary crack 
this metaphor that the actual zigzagging line of urine looked like a crack in a damn face. And of course, it was caused by liquid under great pressure, as would be a fissure in a damn face. But now I think this is going to develop into a, a larger metaphor. It will unfold into a larger metaphor. And as the crack grew ever wider and plaster flakes abandoned the ceiling and covered my auntie's rolled hair, she suddenly saw the street outside divide. The length of the fissure, then the city, the north, the south, and all of England. Mothers on one side, daughters on the other. And the chasm between them strung with brilliant washing. Socks and vests and stockings and skirts and pants. Rinse clean with a blue bag in the kitchen sink. Lifting in the wind. Again, this is a very domestic image, but I think beautiful. And as the crack grew ever wider and plaster flakes abandoned the ceiling and covered my auntie's rolled hair. And this is now imagining the crack being a real thing because plaster flakes are falling on her auntie's head. Her auntie's got her rollers in, as every middle-aged woman in the 60s seemed to. She suddenly saw the street outside divide the length of the fissure. So it's gone outside of the Odeon now, this, this, this mighty crack. Then the city, the north, the south and all of England. So this crack is dividing the country. Mothers on one side, daughters on the other. I think we're talking about what they used to call the generation gap, which I think initially this is what the Beatles did. They belonged to youth, but pretty soon everybody loved those four lads from Liverpool, as they are commonly known. Mothers on one side, daughters on the other, and the chasm between them strung with brilliant washing. So imagine this great chasm. The daughters on one side, the mums on the other. The women of England split down the middle on a, on a generational criterion. Criterion actually was the name of a laundry, so that is, I mean, that's almost poetry in itself. It's the generation gap. They've been separated by this Beatlemania phenomenon. And between them, this mighty gap that separates them, there is washing hanging across it. Socks and vests and stockings and skirts and pants. Rinse clean with a blue bag in the kitchen sink. Lifting in the wind, this beautiful washing blowing across the chasm between youth and let's say non-youth a blue bag by the way i remember it well was um it was blue material which um bled its color a little and it was used to counteract yellowing in fabric i think you see why it would be apt in this case but despite this 
sort of separation of um, moms and daughters. The moms are still doing the daughters' laundry. There's still a dependence, still balance between them. This whole book is about balance. And as I say, soon everyone will love the Beatles and this chasm will close. That bellwether that Auntie Winnie saw in the summer of 63 was an early sign, a herald of the earth-shaking Beatlemania to come. I'm going on to, to part two. And when you go into part two, you realise that this, this is going to develop into an enormous metaphor, an enormous sort of analogy between the Beatles and another piece of art. Section 2, 12th of February 1964, according to the Beatles' Bible, that was when the Beatles did their first New York City gigs. So then it's not about getting promotion on the Roy Orbison tour on a rainy night in Nottingham. It's really big-time stardom. I'm going to read the first bit. Some of you might get this straight away. Can I say, by the way, that whereas the last, the first part of this poem was a zigzag to show us that zigzag of running, flowing urine and also the zigzag of that crack that was going to separate young and old initially in England, this is in two orderly columns. And to me... This says separation, two columns with a gap down the middle. And I think it's possible. I think it suggests the separation that fame now is having on the Beatles and their fans, that that chasm which separated the moms and daughters now separates the band from everyone, really. First bit. Picture it again, the hero at the end, rope-throated by the scaffold, on stop as a bottle of scent. So exquisite, the crowd pours round to save him. Right, what's this got to do with the Beatles, you ask me? Let's just enjoy it at first. Picture it again. So think back to this thing. I'm telling you about, even though I haven't told you about it yet. You're joining me in the description of it. Picture it again. The hero at the end, rope-throated by the scaffold. Rope-throated is hyphenated, and I love it. It says it all. By the scaffold, but rope-throated, ready to be hanged. So the hero at the end, rope-throated by the scaffold, on stoppers a bottle of scent. So exquisite. The crowd pours round to save him. They pour like one might pour a bottle of scent, I suppose. It overpowers them. It takes them over. It has some magical controlling effect on the crowd. And a man who was about to be hanged is about to be saved. Strange. Well, this is a reference I'm pretty sure, though I don't have any fallback upon this, to the novel, and I believe the film, Perfume, 
by Patrick Soskin, in which the protagonist kills teenage girls to extract their scent, which he bottles. And when he's at the scaffold, he releases a bit of this scent. And it's so overpowering, so enormously primal, it leads to a massive orgy. Okay, so clearly there are analogies here with the Beatles, with their controlling power. And the way that they drew the scent from those teenage girls in Nottingham the year before these uh, these New York gigs. I'm going to go on to the next section. It was weird from the beginning. Their grannies serving them tea on a saucer grew weirder. Crutches and drips stacked along corridors, mothers begging their touch, as if their children were scrofulous and they were royalty restored, or Jesus. They couldn't hear a thing, had to stay so in tune with one another, like slipping their arms inside somebody else's sleeves or balancing blindfolded. They shredded their hotel sheets. They auctioned off their knives and forks. Fans showed up in commandeered chambermaid uniforms. If they left by the wrong exit, the car would be crawling with women within seconds. Faces of owls at the windscreen shrieking to get let in. So this is now the Beatlemania. It was weird from the beginning. Their grannies serving them tea. Now, I don't know quite what that means. Does it mean their grannies, they still lived a simple domestic life where their grannies were serving them tea? And yet all this stardom was happening simultaneously? Or is this the grannies of their fans, maybe, who were starting to love them and see them as those lovable Liverpool boys? Anyway, the grannies serving them tea on a saucer. God, I drank a lot of tea out of a saucer as a young man. The theory was that the greater surface area would make it cool more quickly. Try it. Grew weirder. Crotches and drips stacked along corridors, mothers begging their touch as if their children were scrofulous and they were royalty restored or Jesus. So now we're getting to that strange cultish worship of celebrity. Crotches and drips stacked along corridors. Now it starts to sound like, I don't know, a Beatles hospital visit or people bringing their sick children that they might touch the hem of the Beatles' garments, begging their touch as if their children were scrofulous and they were royalty restored. It used to be a thing that if a child had scrofula, which is a disease which I think and hope has now disappeared. Samuel Johnson, the great 18th century writer, who you will know from this podcast I love very much, he had scrofula as a child and his mother took him to London to see, I think it would have been Queen Anne, and there was a belief that if, if royalty touched you, it would cure your scrofula. I think Queen Anne was probably the last royal that people believe that of. 
And uh, she, of course, was of the House of Stuart, put back in power in uh, 1660, the Restoration, and thus royalty restored. Good to know. So begging their touch as if their children were scrofulous and they were royalty restored. Or Jesus. And yes, of course, Jesus healed people. And as I say, the touching of his garment, as I suggested with that reference, was a thing in the Bible, especially for women who had bleeding diseases, as I recall. But also, Jesus, um, John Lennon, said that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus, which caused tremendous trouble for him, particularly in America. And uh, I think it's a little echo of that, of things are going to go a bit wrong. Just like in that early Titanic poem, although it's not about what's going to happen to the Titanic, it's about its launch, there's the odd little reference like choir boys singing and evil skitters off and looks askance for now. So evil is still just bopping about at the launch, not doing anything but just keeping an eye on things. And that bit at the end when it says uh, it's slowed down lest it capsizes before its beginning. So there's little hints. What E.M. Forster, the novelist, said about Beethoven's Fifth Symphony was that there were goblin footfalls, little ominous tiny details of music that made you feel like something bad was going to happen. And I think the reference to Jesus in this reminds anyone who knows about the Beatles of how things change. You used to see these press conferences when the Beatles were just hilarious. They'd go to America and it was like Monty Python had arrived. People were absolutely killing themselves at how funny the Beatles were. And then John Lennon said this more popular than Jesus thing. And then the press conferences turn into confrontational, somber, difficult events. It's a big change. So it's a goblin footfall, if you like. They couldn't hear a thing. This is famously said as as just as those young girls couldn't hear their own screaming the Beatles couldn't hear their own playing and singing they couldn't hear a thing had to stay so in tune with one another like slipping their arms inside somebody else's sleeves that's great isn't it you've got to be that tight a band like slipping their arms inside somebody else's sleeves or balancing blindfolded. So to try and harmonise, to try and play and sing together when you can't hear anything is like balancing blindfolded. It's um, why the Beatles quit touring in the end, because it was hard to do the right thing. And then they shredded their hotel sheets, and you realise very quickly that the they now has become the fans and it very quickly became a they I think a separate force that became quite 
threatening, that love became a menacing phenomenon. They shredded their hotel sheets so they could have a bit each, like um, like the relics of Catholic saints. They shredded their hotel sheets, they auctioned off their knives and forks, fans showed up in commandeered chambermaid uniforms, pretending so they could get into the hotel. If they left by the wrong exit, now it's the Beatles again, the they. If they left by the wrong exit, their car would be crawling with women within seconds. Faces of owls at the windscreen. I don't know if you've ever seen footage from inside a car when fans are surrounding it. Hysterical like that. And owls here because they're staring longingly, but also uh, shrieking to get let in. So they have the sound effects of owls as well. I'm going to move along. Next bit, and it's a sudden key change again, and we're back with the man who took out the bottle of scent. For all his dastardly ravishment, he went too far. Whatever it was, he unleashed on his wafted handkerchief. Too much to bear, and so they unslippered him out of his skin, out of love, and ate him. Now, this is what happens to the protagonist in um, in Perfume. And it's in the end, he has killed all these young girls and drained them of this mystical, essential smell, this scent, this sort of magical mosque. And um, he tips the bottle over himself, and it's so appealing and he knows this will happen, that the people eat him with sheer love. You can see the Beatles' analogies rising up there, can't you? For all his dastardly ravishment, he went too far. Whatever it was, he unleashed on his wafted handkerchief. Too much to bear, so they unslippered him out of his skin. <laughs> Horrible image of peeling it off like a delicate slipper. Out of love. So out of his skin obviously means physically out. Out of love means motivated by love. So they unslippered him out of his skin, out of love, and ate him. And, of course, this is what the love, the passion for the Beatles, this is what happened. They're sort of eaten in the end by the fans and they have to give up touring, etc. Last bit. They had to steal from those seething stadiums like miscreants from a crime scene, bundled into laundry trucks or fish vans. They left behind the boys they were as decoys, the Liverpool lads who cried to be famous, waving wildly in the other direction. Over here! I went slightly scouse at the end and regretted it almost immediately. Over here. They had to steal. That's what on one column. And you think, oh, they had to steal. And then from those seething stadiums. So it means steal like to sneak away. Like miscreants from a crime scene. And then we've got the echoes of the guy who was rope-throated at the beginning of this section. Bundled into laundry trucks or fish vans and it's 
that idea of miscreants and a crime scene, and when they're bundled into laundry trucks or fish vans, I'm reminded of that thing when you see people who've been accused of murder or other crimes leaving the, the, the cells to go to the courtroom. And there are people who actually make the effort to stand outside so they can bang, I'm going to do it, bang on the van. I can't imagine what their motivation is, but people must phone each other up and say, do you fancy going down the uh, the nick today and banging on a uh, accused criminal's van as they leave? Anyway, they left behind the boys they were as decoys, the Liverpool lads who cried to be famous waving wildly in the other direction. Over here. So, yeah, they've left behind the boys they were. And it sounds, because they've got into these vans, that they've left them at the stadium. But I think it means they've just left them behind forever, the boys they were. As decoys, the Liverpool lads who cried to be famous cried they really wanted it waving wildly in the other direction over here so that there's two the 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 poem split down the middle and it's a split in time it's the current Beatles having to steal away in vans and get the hell out of there and they leave behind as decoys it's as if they've left them their old selves to uh, distract the the screaming crowds and those Liverpool lads they left behind cried to be famous they want it they still want it because they haven't had it yet because it's a split in time and this is their past selves crying to be famous and calling over here over here to the girls they really want it they don't know what it's like they don't know about the separation they don't know about the terrible chasm that comes between them and the rest of the world when i first read the second part of this in its two columns i thought i had to read it downwards i've read a lot of bible over the years and that often comes in two columns and you read straight down so i read it like this i'll give you a bit picture it again rope throated by the scaffold of scent so exquisite to save him their granny serving them tea grew weirder stacked along corridors as if their children were scrofulous or Jesus, had to stay so in tune like slipping their arms or balancing. They shredded, they auctioned off, fans showed up, chambermaid uniforms, their car would be crawling within seconds, shrieking to get. For all this dastardly, he went too far on his wafted handkerchief and so they unslippered him out of love. They had to steal like miscreants bundled into or fish vans the boys they were. The Liverpool lads waving wildly. Over. So I read it like that, the first column, and I thought, I love this poem. I love its fractured snapshot textures. And I thought, oh yeah, I definitely want to talk about this one on the podcast. And then when I'd read it a few more times and was getting to like it even more, I thought, I'll do it. I'm reading this wrong. And I don't know. Sinead Morrissey is so clever, it would not surprise me in the slightest that she's deliberately separated them so that they work as a readable 
picture it again, the hero at the end, rope-throated by the scaffold on stop as a bottle of scent so exquisite. Or, and I'm going to give you some of the second column now, the hero at the end on stop as a bottle, the crowd pours round. It was weird from the beginning, on a saucer. Crutches and drips, mothers begging their touch, and they were royalty restored. They couldn't hear a thing with one another inside somebody else's sleeves, blindfolded. Their hotel sheets, their knives and forks in commandeered. If they left by the wrong exit with women, faces of owls at the windscreen let in. Ravishment. Um, I could go on. I think it works brilliantly when misread. So I'm hoping that the misreading was something that Sinead has packed into the whole container. And if it isn't, I'm just delighted that I found uh, an accidental beautiful poem tucked away inside this one like four scousers in a truck. Look, that is Sinead Morrissey. I really wanted to go on and read the next bit, which was about a, a, a Beatles tribute band gigging in Belfast. Also brilliant. But like I say, this book is packed with brilliance. I would very much recommend On Balance by Sinead Morrissey. It made me happy. It might make you happy too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week.